My guest Sean's been playing and creating music for over 30 years. Um, he spent most of his life working as kind of a self-employed freelancer. He's played in a jazz trio at wine bars. Um, he's played electric guitar with an orchestra. He's also done other things like editing audiobooks, creating websites. Um, and as you'll hear Sean explain kind of towards the end of the show, he's one of those people where, where music just made sense to him from a very early, early age. Um, there's kind of like a real magic to it that allowed him to feel some comfort in a world that otherwise seemed impossible to navigate. And that's actually where we spent most of the conversation around that that part about why music was so important and that it helped him navigate the world, trying to figure this thing out. Um, so we talked a lot about his philosophical and scientific views. Um, and Sean spoke about acceptance as his most important value, very much in kind of the stoic sense, because uh, he struggled in his life with, with anger issues, with poor coping mechanisms. So he uses the stoic approach to try and stop um, his emotions from controlling him. And on script with Stoic philosophy, Sean's goal is to try and, you know, kind of separate himself from those visceral reactions, the social conditioning, his ego, so that he can understand the world around him more objectively and try and live a better life, frankly. Um, so we spent a good time, bit of time exploring those ideas and trying to understand if there's any shadow side to them. Does an approach that centers on acceptance force you to become cold and dismissive of other people's suffering? Does the utility of stoicism cause us to devalue the human emotional aspects of life? And we also tried to make sense of like why humans need a philosophy like stoicism to live a better life. Like, why do we need to learn how to be human <laughs> rather than just being able to trust our natural instincts? And as often happens on the show, we also spoke about, you know, the broader meaning of life and the existence of a God, if there is one. And Sean falls into that category that so many of us fall into, where we don't have really like a strong, rational reason to believe there is a meaning to life or that we should be trying to make the world a better place. Um, yet we feel compelled to do so anyway. And he spoke about like not wanting to be a nihilist, even if it may seem like the most logical conclusion to be one. And I have to say, like exploring these ideas with someone who's just so thoughtful and so diverse in their thinking was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sean and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. All right, Sean, thanks so much for being here. Really excited to talk to you today. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, of course, man. Of course. I like to dive right in. So I will do that and ask what's the value that's most important to you. You know, I, I read that on, on your podcast description and I had to think about it for a while. Um, and I settled on acceptance. Mm, okay. That's the first time I think we heard that one. So yeah, tell me a little yeah. bit more about that. How do you define um, that? You know, I've, I've done, I've done a few years of therapy. Um, and one of the things that I did in that was actually to go through an entire list of values mm. and kind of categorize which ones were really important to me, which ones kind of in the middle, which ones were not important. Um, and <clears throat> so I've thought a lot about this, this idea of values and like living your values and, and being satisfied with your life that way. And except it's as kind of an umbrella term gets me it, the thread of that runs through a lot of different things and i think it just starts with accepting the way things are in a sort of an objective way um modern psychology sometimes uses the term radical acceptance as a way of saying look this is the situation you are in um you know your car broke down your girlfriend left you, whatever that is. That is just a statement of fact. There is no judgment about that particular thing. And then if you've, if you've really sort of internalized, okay, that's what the situation really is, then your reaction to that becomes a lot more measured and, and purposeful. Mm. Yeah, I like it. I like that direction. I mean, it's almost, um, if you're familiar with it, a little bit has flavors of like stoicism and like the stoic. I definitely yeah. stoicism is my number one. If there's a formal philosophical structure that I study, it's it's stoicism for sure. Okay. All right. Yeah, that checks out. That checks out. <laughs> um, all right. So let me ask you the thing I often think about with stoicism and, and even just what you're saying, because it doesn't necessarily have to be framed in that way. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll jump right into the philosophical aspect of it. So on the one hand, that makes so much sense to me. And if I'm honest, that's what I'm striving to do all the time. Like I've, I've lived most of my life from somebody that's been like too, too emotional, like, like I let mm. anger get the better of me, not just mm. accept situations what they are. Mm. And in some ways, in somewhat of like a childlike way, assume things should be different because I want them to be different. And I, I, yeah. I know as well as anybody that like, that doesn't work. It just doesn't <laughs> help. So I totally get the idea and the concept and the value of it. 
The thing I often think about, though, if, if there is a shadow side to it, is does if, if and I'm, I guess tell me where you're going with this. But if you focus too much just on radical acceptance and, and don't allow yourself to be upset or bothered or allow emotion to come into that, is something lost in that? Like, is there some aspect of humanity or yourself that's lost if you don't allow for that? Yeah, that's that's a really important distinction to make. And it's something that's come up, you know, in my readings and in my therapy. It's like, you're going to feel what you feel. Your feelings are going to happen. We're not turning into robots mm. uh, by doing this and just reacting to our, our programming. Um, well, we are actually reacting to our human programming, but, you know, we're not just turning things off. It's It's going through the practice of this acceptance and different tools that you can try to use to learn how to be better at it. Um, like meditation and mindfulness, which there are stoic ways to do that. Stoicism is has a lot of things in common with Buddhism, mm -hmm. um, if people are familiar with that. And when something happens, then you will have a reaction to it. And there is a tiny gap in between those two things mm -hmm. that you kind of have to practice to grab onto that gap and pause and say, does this need a reaction? what kind of reaction would be the most useful in this moment? Certainly I get mad. <laughs> I get angry. I get upset. I get depressed. I get sad. I, I get happy. I, I have joy. I have all those emotions, but through this constant sort of practice of, of mindfulness and trying to do it, I, I feel like I have a better sense of reacting to a situation in a way that's most useful either for myself or for everyone, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, that's, you know, something that that requires constant practice. This is not something you're going to learn to do and be an expert at it all the time. I, a long time ago, I kind of, the thought popped into my head that I start over every day. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a bad thing. You know, one, another tenet of so, uh, stoicism is that you want to be challenged mm -hmm. so you can be your sort of best self um, to, to overcome these challenges. So, yeah, we're not looking to just kind of turn off our emotions and not react to things. We're just trying to make sure that those emotions are not overruling our logic. Um, mm. You know, because those emotions, those instant snap judgment emotions come from a very primitive part of our brain that's programmed for fight or flight. Um, some people add freeze or appease to that list of things. And that sort of lizard brain that's set to react immediately uh, for the purposes of our survival mm -hmm. is good. But in modern society, even even when the Stoics were coming about, you know, 2000 years ago, not as useful. Mm. <laughs> so that's where, you know, all kinds of different philosophies and practices um, allow us to sort of have a better handle on on that lizard brain and make it make sure that we're not overreacting to things. Mm. Mm. All right. It's a really good answer. So let me press on that a little bit and, <laughs> yeah. and kind of explore it, because I think. There's a couple of words you said in there, which are not are not bad words, but they're good ones to kind of linger on for a little bit and see what to yeah. make of them, right? Like there's a there's the usefulness of it, right? And, and I don't know if you said this word, but there's almost like a utilitarianism of it. Like it's it's much more functional to follow this approach. It's much more logical, which again mm -hmm. I, I do not disagree with, and and I don't even disagree with the idea that like those that emotional reaction is is likely rooted biologically, evolutionarily, in like that lizard brain, mm -hmm. but is that is that potentially the the risk of it or the danger right like that that focus on the utility of it the usefulness of it which in some ways is obvious right like why wouldn't mm -hmm. i focus on the thing that's most useful like that's inherently a good thing to focus on i just wonder though is there something about that 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 lizard emotional reaction you know that lizard brain emotional reaction that allows us to um to remain human in some ways. And, and I, I, I'm struggling with the words because I know what you're saying. Like we're not being robotic. We're still, well, yeah. maybe let me use, a, use the example. You said you still get angry. You still get mm -hmm. mad. You still oh, get yeah. Mad, yeah. Right. Like when you get angry, mm -hmm. do you view that as, like it still happens, but do you view that as like a flaw in the system? Like you shouldn't have got angry, but you still do because you still slip up or is it, no, no, no. I'm allowed to still get angry. That mm -hmm. anger is still functional mm -hmm. in its own ways, but I'm able to manage it and put it into perspective in the greater scheme of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's okay. um, definitely, I still get angry. And 
none of this is meant to judge the emotions that you're having. Like it's, it's, and, and that's something that I've had in the past where I, I get really angry or I get depressed for a couple of days. And then I start beating myself up for like, oh, why are you angry? Why are you depressed? So we're not making any judgments on our emotions. We're just making sure that our reaction to that emotion isn't the harmful thing. Um, give you an example of, um, I, I used to have a little bit of an anger management issue. I uh, never directed it toward other people, but I would direct it towards things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something, something goes wrong with my computer and then I'm picking up a book and throwing it across the room and, and putting a chunk out of the wall. Yeah. It's like, okay, my anger is genuine and in some ways justified because I'm trying to do something and the, the machine is not working right. But my choice of, what to do with that anger was not helpful and was damaging um and i think can be redirected in a way that's just if not useful at least not harmful to which ourselves. i guess is useful in, in some ways mm -hmm. right another way of saying useful you could argue yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it's what like you you're, you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. You get angry. Are you going to ride their ride their tail and honk your horn? A lot of us have done that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in doing that, you're not solving a problem and you're potentially making the problem worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, other things, you know, and, and I'm, generally this we're talking about more like emotions that we would consider negative. Yeah. the anger and depression and fear and things like that. You can apply the same ideas to happiness and joy, not that you have to change them, but just to be more actively engaged with those when they're there. That's a problem I've had in the past. When I have moments of joy, they just kind of blip by and I don't soak them in like I should. Mm. So that's another thing that I try to do is like, if I'm having a really good day or a really good moment or just, you know, looking at a beautiful flower, really be actively engaged in doing that. Hmm. Um, so this applies to all different kinds of emotions too. Um, so yeah, it's, it's never to not have the emotion um, or to judge the emotion as wrong. Uh, it's just to make sure that your follow-up after you have the emotion um, isn't harmful. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. I, I buy that. I get that. What is it? Um, what is it all towards in your mind? If you had to say, like, is it towards happiness? Like, if you had to say, like, I, I want to, I value acceptance. I want to be able to practice it effectively, because it will get me. Like, what's at the end of that thread? Yeah, um, happiness is a weird word for me. I, I decided that I don't really like it <laughs> um, because I think it's a bit vague. Um, I, I prefer to look for joy as an active, engaged. I'm doing something kind of experience and contentment mm. means a lot more to me, at least in terms of, you know, the word definition feels better. Mm. And yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm looking for um, in, in trying to practice these, these approaches to, to thoughts and, and things like that um, to get out of, you know, I've been in places where I'm just kind of like at a low boil of dissatisfaction all the time. Mm. Um, and this really got me out of it. Um, just to kind of be, you know, making a, a cup of tea in the afternoon can be a very joyful experience, mm. <laughs> you know, if you're really engaged with it. How much work do you find it to be? Like, is it hard? Do you find it oh, hard yeah. work to make that <laughs> cup of tea and actually enjoy it? Because there's a weird like <laughs> juxtaposition in that of like, how much you have to go through to be able to enjoy that cup of tea, which I, again, I get it. I very much agree with it, but I'm just curious to hear how it works for you. <laughs> yeah. It's, this is all definitely something that's, that it is hard work. It is something that I don't do all the time. Um, and, and sometimes I have to kind of go back over my day and think about, Oh yeah, I had that moment where I got really, really mad and, and I didn't, put the brakes on that for a second and think about why I was mad. I was just, mm. I just kind of let that, that emotion take over. Mm. Um, and it's going to happen. It's, you know, it's always a process. Um, but for me, it's definitely been better to have the process than to have none at all. And just kind of blunder through like a, like a ball in a, in a 
you know, on a ping pong table or something. Um, and it's better because when you practice it, you find you have more of that joy and contentment in your life versus otherwise, like mathematically to an extent, you know, there's like less of that that you had prior. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, it's gotten, you know, I I've talked about with other people, like, you know, my baseline of satisfaction or contentment used to be kind of low. And now my baseline is much higher than it was. I still have ups and downs Mm -hmm. certainly. Um, but the downs don't last as long. I enjoy the ups better and the whole, the overall thing has just been raised up a little bit. Um, you know, one of my favorite sayings and I forget who said it was, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm, yeah, I forget you said that too, but I like that one. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, a, a lot of people are looking for one one shot answers, one pill, one person to tell them the one thing that they need to do. And it never works that way. Mm. Um, so as long as things are generally going in the right direction, that's that's good. It seems better, right? Than going yeah. in the worst direction. <laughs> yeah. O- on that thread um, of don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. I find myself thinking about this a lot. I had a very similar experience, many of them to you, but literally today I was driving home just a bit ago and I found like that similar, like just a general level of like frustration and dissatisfaction. I found myself getting annoyed at the people driving in front of me. And I I guess very much like you're saying, like I I take, um, I take solace in the fact that at least I'm able to like be aware of that now. Like, Oh, that's why why is that happening? Like what's going on there? Right. So like, you're right. It, it, It does always seem to be there. One of the questions I often think about, and maybe it's different for everybody, but like, do you think you can ever completely control it? Cause what I've found in like my progression is that situations like that, maybe where maybe in the past I do get really frustrated and the guy in front of me is going too slow. And now I am riding up his ass or whatever. Like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like I have enough of an ability to recognize that doesn't make any sense. I shouldn't do that. But there's other situations where if something worse does happen, I still do feel like, well, in that situation, I have no control. Like I'm just, it's gone. Train leaves the station and I'm angry and I'm, you know, I'm cursing, I'm yelling, whatever it might be. And it makes me wonder, like, am I just getting better at like controlling certain aspects of it? But there's always like this monster inside of us that like, if unleashed for whatever reason is just going to go, or can we ever actually Mm. tame that monster? Mm. Um, I I don't think it's ever going to be a hundred percent. I think you're always going to have those moments. Um, There may even be moments where it's the correct action to take. If, if you're seriously being threatened, you know, I, I don't think I would practice mindfulness uh, and and measured responses if I was in an active shooter situation. Mm-hmm. That's not the time for it. That's the time to let the lizard brain take over. That's okay. <laughs> that's why it's there, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly why it's there. And it's always going to be there. And no, you're never going to get 100%. You know, we're not going to turn into Vulcans and be totally in control all the time. Um, it's just, it's, it's a tool that we can use to just make things generally better. And at least for me, as you were saying, you know, kind of the little things it helps with, and sometimes there's bigger things that it doesn't, I I think kind of taking care of those little things goes a long way toward raising that baseline. So you're not constantly simmering on this bed of, of discontentment and and frustration. Mm -hmm. For you, um, you know, you mentioned the anger stuff. I, I, I relate to that. My, my parents are listening. They'll be like, yeah, we've had a few holes in our walls when you were younger that we had to patch for very much that reason. Um, as you think about like the genesis of that um, and wherever you're comfortable going with it, obviously, like where, where do you think that was that just genetics for you? You think you were just kind of born with that or like have you have you tried to get underneath like where the source of it comes from? Yeah, that's it's, you know, when I first went to see a therapist, I kind of had in mind sort of this cliched idea of a therapist saying, oh, everything goes back to your childhood. And I was like, does it really all go back to your childhood? And after a couple of years, I was like, yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love my parents dearly and they were great, but they were young and they didn't know what they were doing. Um, you know, by all accounts, I had a pretty good childhood, but one that with very, very little guidance. Mm. I had to figure a lot of things out on my own. Um, and when you do that, you learn ways of coping with the world when you're five or eight or 12 years old and you carry those forward. And by the time I'm 30 years old, the tools of my eight year old self aren't helpful anymore, but they're so ingrained 
that it takes a lot of work to get out of that habit. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, where I was five, 10 years ago was, was in a place of needing to realize that my coping mechanisms that worked when I was 10 didn't work anymore. And mm. I needed to find some new ways. Mm. Which is hard to do, right? Because typically in the moments when you need those better coping mechanisms, it's mm -hmm. when that anger, that rage or whatever is taken over. And in those moments, like, good luck. <laughs> yeah, to, and, know, and it, it becomes a thing where it, it feels totally normal yes. to have those yeah. reactions because that's how you've always done it. Yes. And that that was what finally got me into therapy was was finally realizing like, oh, I'm down for a couple of days and then I'm better. I'm down for a week, then I'm better. Then like, I'm down for like a month and whatever I've been doing is not working. Mm need some new tools and i just don't know what those tools are because everything i've i usually do is not working yeah if you try to like extrapolate that out about what it says about like humanity or human nature because uh you know obviously i'm no expert on this by any means but i think most animals in the wild like there's certainly a period in which at least for some of them that they do need to figure out how to be a lion right no they'll, they'll practice hunting as a cub <laughs> Right. Do you like parallel it to that? Because it, it seems interesting to me that as humans, if you don't get guidance in some ways, like you start to form these habits that aren't right. Like, why can't we figure it out on our own? I guess is mm. the question. Like, why mm. do we need to be taught how to be human? Do you ever think about that and wonder why that is? Um, I, I don't think I've, I've thought about it in exactly those terms, but it is an interesting question. I, maybe a lot of it just comes down to us being social animals. Um, we, we're primates. You know, and I think I, I wonder if you looked at a chimpanzee raised away from other chimps, what would how would that chimp act? Mm -hmm. You know, other animals like like lions have a lot of instinct. You know, they work in groups and it seems like their set of skills or interactions is a bit simpler than ours might be. I don't know if that's a that's a fair judgment, um, but for humans, we are we evolved to be social and to be in groups. And if we don't have a lot of guidance to being in groups, it can be difficult <laughs> in a lot of ways when, when we're put in those groups and we have to learn to interact and we don't have a good model to, to figure out how should we be around our classmates or things like that. Um, if there's a genetic component to it, I don't know where it comes from. I definitely consider myself an introvert. Mm. Um, and I, I, why? I don't know. I spent a lot of time when I was al alone as a kid. Um, and that feels totally normal to me. Uh, but is it detrimental in some ways? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I can't, I can't, like, I always come back to this thought and I don't know if it's right, but like, our, our consciousness, our ability to have this conversation and even ponder these questions and think mm -hmm. about like, hey, Sean, what happened in your childhood? What allowed you to get, what happened in mine, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's so much good and beauty in it and it allows for innovation and, and unlocking new things and, and amazing things. But it also, I think, comes at the cost of like, it, it's torturous. Like it's us trying to explain things that likely we'll never fully understand. Like I ask you that question, like what is it about humans that makes that the case? The reality is neither of us really know. Nobody really mm -hmm. knows, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much about the human mind. We don't understand the universe in general. And like to have this gift to be able to talk and think in this way is great and all, but it also leads to a lot of the issues because we're, we're trying to figure something out that maybe was never meant to be figured out or was never meant to be questioned, but we can't help but do it. At least that's where I find myself often. Like, I think that's why I do the show is like, much like where you were before, I want joy. I want contentment. So like, all right, my, my tool to do that is let me think about and figure out how to create that. And that mm -hmm. comes with two sides to that coin, you know? So I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely kind of a, of a, of a double-edged, thing to to have the ability to contemplate the meaning of life and probably never get a concrete answer mm -hmm. um that's something that that i have leaned on a lot when i when i get into those modes of thinking is kind of the scientific minded approach of being comfortable with saying i don't know i think a lot of people are not comfortable with that if there's some gap of information, it makes them extremely uncomfortable to leave that there. 
Um, and for me, I, I have learned to be comfortable with not knowing and potentially never knowing. Um, I, I would like to know for sure. <laughs> but like for me, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about it through that lens. I think what I what I struggle with most is not knowing, like, am, am I living a good life? I think for mm. me that not knowing that seems like well then well then what do I do then <laughs> right like mm. that seems like a tough one to not know the answer to like did I did I do enough today and this goes right back to stoicism right I think stoicism mm. is meant to say don't beat yourself up about that like don't don't allow yourself to get in your head in that way just focus on what you can control and what you do have and I get that I think that's a lot of the value in it but to that point about not knowing I think that's right for a lot of people myself I'm sure included on smaller things but on the biggest of things, like the meaning of life, that seems like such a big one to not know and to just accept, <laughs> even like practically yeah. and like, yeah. you know, practically yeah. how we function. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, the Stoics would say, as long as you are living up to your own values and your values are doing good for the people around you, then you're living a good life. Mm. Um, you know... The train of thought left the building and I wasn't on well, you might, <laughs> might have been a, it was somewhat of a mic drop too because that that probably is the best answer in some ways right like figure out what matters mm -hmm. to you yeah try and yeah. be that good person and do it it's I mean, just there's so much like the devil's in the details I guess of like yeah how do you I know mean, what does it look yeah, like there are certain things about um you know I'll let's throw everything out on the table I'm an atheist mm. and a lot of people would look at me and like, how does your life have any meaning? It's like, because I believe that when I die, I'm just gone. That's mm -hmm. it. I have spent my time being a being in the universe and, and then it'll be over for me. Then my meaning is the meaning that I make. I have to make it. And I have a limited time to do that. Um, I also really believe strongly in civilization moving forward and the potential that humanity has to be great. I have grown up on science fiction and I love the worlds of things like Star Trek, where there's this great galactic society where people can thrive. Mm. And I'm never going to experience that, but I can try to do as much as I can to I, I call it kind of helping row the boat in the right direction. Where does the optimism um, come from that you think humanity can get there? Um, I think without that optimism, my other natural inclination is nihilism. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit of be, being, being of the generation I am. I'm, I'm sort of like, pessimistically optimistic <laughs> you know i i definitely can look around the world today and see a lot of things that i feel like are careening us toward global disaster but at the same time i still have to hope um that we can turn that around see there's people that have had on the show but people in general that would say that's that's god that hope that you have, that optimism. That, now, I'm not saying that's what it is, right? The full respect yeah. to you as an atheist. Yeah, but I'm curious, yeah. how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that is for a lot of people. And that's something, you know, I don't want to take that away from anyone else and say, oh, no, it's not. It's just your brain doing things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as long as that, mo whatever you believe motivates you to live a good life, set a good example, and do the best you can not to leave the world worse when you're gone, it doesn't matter what you, what kind of faith or non-faith you have. I wonder though, because like I bring up this example too much on this show, but it's just the easiest, most convenient one in a situation like this, like, like Hitler, right? Hitler, mm -hmm. Hitler had a lot of issues. I know there was drugs, there was mental, you know, some mental yeah. illness, I'm sure. But at least at some point, he likely believed he was going to leave the world in a better place. Now his vision of what that was and why it was a better place obviously could differ between me and you. But when you put like that, that parameter on it to say, Hey, if you're leaving the world in a better place, if you're trying to do good, mm -hmm. does that leave too much ambiguity where people like a Hitler could be like, Oh, awesome. I'm doing that. Great. That's yeah. That's, a, that's a really tough place to, to be. And I think that might be, you know, if they were a symposium, global symposium on philosophy or something, 
the hardest argument to to solve would be like what do you do with someone whose idea of ethics or morality is so obviously wrong uh, you know are ethics and morality objective or subjective I think you could argue for some objective morality, or I don't really use the term morality a lot. Ethics is, is my preferred term, but what's you the know, argument for it, would you say? I don't know. Do no harm. seems very simple. And I've, I've heard it in, in, in a lot of different contexts, like Hitler thought he was right, but he was causing, obviously causing a lot of harm. I think you could objectively say that he was causing harm and not give him the benefit of the doubt because he thought he was right <laughs> you know yeah it's it's you know sometimes people view this as like philosophical games and just logic games and, and mm -hmm. there's some truth to that but like it starts to get nuanced though right because it's like well we did harm to stop him was that okay and and, and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll say some things you tell me if you agree with yeah. this i think somebody would say like no, no no but if nobody did harm if everybody followed that to begin with then we're in a steady state equilibrium but even mm -hmm. that, I wonder, like, where, where do we draw the line? Like, the example I bring up again, probably too much in this show, is like inoculation or vaccine. That does mm -hmm. some small degree of harm, but there's a greater good. And I bring it up because it starts to be like, okay, there's there's a spectrum here where maybe we're okay with some harm. That subjectivity comes back in to say, where do we draw the line on it? And back to your symposium, I think that's where the debate happens. Of like, And, yeah, and I think that's yeah. where God fills the blank a lot. A lot of people plug God in to be like, well, just do it this way. And I don't have to explain. This is just <laughs> yeah. what God said. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very true. I think that's a place where, where, you know, I would say, I don't know. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So they <laughs> will plug God or a powerful politician or somebody tell me what to do uh, into that space. But I think you're right. That's one of the, the messiest places to discuss human interaction is what is right and wrong is kind of a moving target, depending on how many people agree with what is right and wrong. And like you say, like, you know, going to war against Germany, was that good or bad? Uh, I mean, in the, in the long run, it might've been the only option. So therefore it's good. We can look back on it in retrospective and say, a different solution could have been preferable, but that's what had to be done or it would have been a lot worse. Mm. And, and again, it's kind of back to the, the perfect being the enemy of the good. We can only do the best that we can do because humans are flawed and messy creatures sometimes. So that we, we, we can strive for that. I, the idealism, um, but we're going to take a very meandering path to get there. That's right. Uh, a lot of times. Yeah, I had a, I had a guest on recently um, who, this is going to hurt my head to say it, but I'm going to say it because I'm curious <laughs> your reaction to it. His view of it, which I think was actually pretty sophisticated in it, was like objective objectivity is actually a relative term, which right away seems like, well, those two things are incompatible. Like it's not mm -hmm. relative, it's objective. But mm -hmm. his point was exactly where I think you are, which is objective is relative in the sense that it's like, the best answer or the most clear answer if we're using it in that terms that we can come up with given the situation right and it's mm -hmm. like given the limitations of the human mind and that we're flawed the most objective we can be is as you said like it looks like that's the evidence seems to point towards and i think the idea of that being objective feels like on principle wrong because it's not objective means it's absolutely the right thing <laughs> like there's no opinion there's no speculation it's just right but maybe for us as humans, objective actually just means like 99%, not 100%. And we have to be okay with that. Yeah, I think I think this is a case of, you know, scientifically objective is defined a little bit different than philosophically objective. Mm -hmm. um, scientifically objective is definitely entirely based on observable data and reproducible results. And if there's something you don't know, you have to just stop there and don't know and carry on keep working find new ways to ask the questions philosophically objective is sort of a majority rules kind of thing where if enough of us agree that murder is wrong then we'll all believe that murder is wrong mm -hmm. but it still happens mm -hmm. i i don't think 
there are many people in this country who would actually stand up in public and say, I think murder is fine. Let's do it. But it still happens. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of trying to work through things with an objective mindset, I, I feel like that's a somewhat better starting place than being entirely subjective. I, it's almost related to, it's sort of a big picture external version of, of that mindfulness practice of not overreacting to your emotions. Mm. If you become too subjective in a larger societal way, um, you get, you can get a lot of chaos and anarchy or very, very deep rooted divisions like we have now. Mm. Uh, that's something over the past few years, I've thought a lot about that. There are people on both sides of an argument who are so far apart that they don't even seem to be arguing about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a, a philosophical question that I have no idea how to answer. Yeah, I was hoping, I was hoping <laughs> you did because I don't either. But it's like, to me, what I what I come back to in that is from my personal philosophy on life is it comes back to like a sense of responsibility for each of us mm -hmm. to um, acknowledge that fact, as you just said, that there is no true objectivity, right? Some people want to believe in objectivity. For some people, God is objective, right? Religion, God, spirituality, mm -hmm. that is the objective, right? And that's, they follow that. And, and I think there's value in that, but there's also danger because as soon as you accept something to be completely true that you can't necessarily verify, you can be manipulated and, and spun a lot of different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So then the other side of that spectrum is too subjective, just everything's up to anybody, it doesn't matter, right? Nihilistic almost. Mm -hmm. To me, it's like, you have to walk, like you have to acknowledge the fact that we can't have objectivity, but we want to strive towards it. So we have to constantly be questioning and checking. And if we raise our hands and all of us say murder is not okay, okay, great. Then that's what we're going with. But nothing's written in stone, right? Maybe a mm -hmm. hundred years from now or whatever, we have to constantly be revisiting these things and looking at them. Not because we want people to go start murdering mm -hmm. people, but mm -hmm. because we're trying to get to the best possible outcome. And the mm -hmm. only way you do that is by everybody individually questioning, challenging, trying to get more acceptance and control over themselves in those situations. Mm -hmm easier said than done, but to me, that's yeah. Possible. Yeah. And for me, that's where I, I, I go back to my sort of science minded approach to life. And in science, if you are presented with new information and new data that gives you new results for your experiment, you have to accept that the results are what they are. And I think if, we do that with our laws, with our customs, with our approach to society, with our interactions with other people, get comfortable with that constant change that's going to happen. Try to work toward your, your goals that you would like, you know, if you, uh, I don't know how to change people's minds, <laughs> you know, um, we can pass laws, you know, we've, we passed laws about civil rights 50, 60 years ago but people are still racist. I don't know how to change that other than trying to live a good example myself. Would you say, Sean, that like, because what it makes me think of is, you're right, right? We need to be willing to, to, to question and change in that very scientific approach you said. But I think where it's where it's most difficult, and I think um, to stick with the science theme, you familiar with Richard Feynman? You heard him? The, mm -hmm. the, the, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think he said this quote of like, the, the easiest person to deceive is yourself. And yeah. to me, it comes back to that, right? That monster mm -hmm. we were talking about before, those moments where the anger gets the better of you or the depression or whatever, mm -hmm. it feels so true and right. Like this is the right reaction. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the biggest thing to question. And the hardest thing is to actually question yourself. So take racism as an example of it. Like mm -hmm. I'd have to imagine in that person's head, it's much like me when I punch a hole in the wall because I lost a video game when I was you know, 19 or whatever. <laughs> in that moment, it feels mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is the right thing to do. I'm okay in yeah. this. Still a good person. This is all good. Something happened that allowed this to be okay, and it's that questioning of that, that like really hard, difficult, vulnerable questioning of like maybe I'm not as good of a person as I thought I am. Maybe I am racist. Maybe it's not okay that I say this thing or make that joke or have this viewpoint. That's like to me, that's what can't be understated. How hard it is to actually challenge your own deeply held beliefs. We all know it and we say it. Like you should do that. But to do it is kind of the journey you've been on to challenge those beliefs about those coping mechanisms. That's kind of mm -hmm. it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I would say a big part of that process for me was going through kind of a, a, 
a method of taking the the judgments I've made about myself and re-examining those judgments mm. in the moment of saying, not only saying like being able to say, okay, the reaction I had to that wasn't ideal, but also to say then the follow-up judgment I made about myself mm. was, wasn't good. Mm. Um, and kind of hand in hand with that, I, I've spent a lot of time and I, I continue to, this is one of the hardest things for me was to separate my internal self from the external world. Mm that those the judgments that i was making about myself is that really me making those judgments or is that the world around me making me think that and that's a constant battle to and do again, that you never really know for sure like you know some ways yeah yes yeah, so in some ways you never know for sure um you know and i've spent time doing things there are things that you can do in in therapy that sort of reprocess old memories, it's the closest thing you'll ever get to uh, going back in time with your current knowledge. <laughs> you know, you go back to that old memory and recognize that child you, your, your childlike understanding of that is, is a skewed perspective. And you bring your sort of adult understanding with you to talk to the child version of yourself and get a new view of whatever that event was mm. um that's a really powerful thing to go through uh in in therapy um but it's 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 always still a constant battle of, of understanding if i'm feeling self-critical i have to stop and ask myself why is there a reason i'm feeling this right now and what is the real thing behind this you know it's kind of like a lot of times it, it, you interact with people and they get angry they might not actually be angry about the thing that they seem to be angry about mm -hmm. and you have to do that with yourself too it's like am i really mad that my car has a flat tire or is this just sort of the straw that broke the camel's back mm -hmm. of some other things that are boiling in the back of my head mm -hmm. mm. and i do you find I think the way I find it most often is, and this may not be a healthy approach to it. I mean that genuinely, but like almost like sometimes our minds working against us in that to figure out that answer. Like it's, <laughs> it's playing this game of trying to like keep us from seeing what it really is. Maybe it's our ego. Maybe it's our subconscious, that lizard brain to protect us in some ways. It thinks it's doing good. But I often find myself when I try and answer a question like that, it's not just wanting to answer it. And like, it's like you almost have to play chess with your own mind to actually figure out what it is. Do you find that? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. I I found that a lot, and I found that that it's definitely a, a part of your brain is trying to protect you, uh, even if it's not a helpful protection anymore. Um, it's definitely trying to keep you from some sort of pain, mm. um, and it, that is a very hard thing to kind of walk up to that pain and and push through it instead of avoiding it. Yeah, because that's exactly the opposite of back to that lizard brain. Mm -hmm. That's programmed to say pain, bad. You yeah. get away from that, right? You fight it, you yeah. get away from it, you do what you have to yeah. do. Yeah. So in some ways, exactly. you're trying to fight against nature. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you, Sean, as, as we're coming somewhat towards the end, this might sound random and out of the blue, but I, I think it's, I'm curious, because up to this point in the conversation, obviously, I, through the intro, I mentioned this in your background, I know, but mm -hmm. very, you know, stoicism, obviously, very scientific approach to thinking about this. Mm -hmm. But you're a musician as well. Not that those <laughs> things are mutually exclusive, but I'm just curious how that all, is yeah, that I am. part of it? Is that a different <laughs> aspect of you and who you are? How does that fit together? I, I guess um, when, when I started playing guitar, it just took over. Like, I didn't have a choice. You know, I would practice until my fingers hurt and I put the guitar down and then 10 minutes later, I'm playing it again and I don't even remember picking it up. So that was a clear sign to me that this was something that reached a part of me that needed expression. Mm. Um, I was always artistic as a kid. I, I did a lot of art. I still do. But that creative expression through music was like immediately such an eye-opening experience for me and so satisfying what did it feel and like I, you had to put it into words boy i don't know if i can put it into words but i can say that those coping mechanisms that i had as a child that weren't useful i think music became a coping mechanism that was useful 
whether writing lyrics of uh, whatever's on my mind or just the physical act of playing an instrument, being in a band, being social with people. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was all not just creatively fulfilling, but like psychologically important to, to have that. And as a, you know, music and art is entirely subjective. Mm -hmm. um, so it is in a lot of ways, very opposite the ideas of, of a scientific based life. Um, but somehow it, it's never felt uh, out of place to me, I mm -hmm. guess. Even though I'm an atheist, I guess I would have to say that, you know, if the word spirituality is not too religiously loaded, music is a spiritual experience for me. Mm. And that's how I, that's one of the ways I get that kind of experience, what someone might feel standing in a church or something like that, I get from music. Mm. Mm. So interesting to think about that. Like, if you try to get to the root of that for you and, and, I hesitate to even ask this question. There's a time in which I would have asked it in a second. I'm like, but why do you think that is that music does that for you? And I almost think that that's like detrimental to the value of music and that type of thing. But you know, you I, th think I think that the deeper we explore the human brain, um, we're going to find a lot more corners of the brain that do things that we didn't know that they could do. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen, read articles about the studies if you study someone's brain while they're playing music or listening to music it activates parts of the brain that are not activated by language hmm. so music is consumed in our brains or processed in our brains by parts that are not part of our language and speaking and reading comprehension hmm. so it's i i think in some ways music is it's almost a part of that lizard brain still mm. too. It, it gets into a more primal uh, part of our being. Um, and we're not the only animals that, that use music, you know, um, bird song and things like that. It's, it is communication, but it's also done in a way that's very musical. Mm. And I, I think that the physics of sound um has a different impact on our brain than just spoken word or reading something does. Yeah, you just said it too. The spirituality word—that's the word I come back to mm. most. If I had to say, I'm, yeah. I'm probably I'm probably an atheist too. Although I don't know that I have conclusions on anything, <laughs> as you'll get from this conversation. But one of the things I've learned from doing this podcast is like how like what you were just explaining of like what music does for you and even how it works if you start to break down the science and the physics of sound waves and how it impacts and mm. interacts with our brain and our minds and what happens there like you can't it starts to it's magic like if if, if you had no context for what we were talking about mm. and you explained it in those words you'd be like oh we're talking about magic is what we're talking about like supernatural sci-fi type yeah stuff. right but it's not right so mm. there's such mm. a, like a blending of those when you really think about it yeah yeah it's it's very interesting there's there's stories out there oliver sacks um has some books about that he studied people with brain injuries who suddenly learned to they can play the piano mm. they never did before they just do because that's that works in a different part of the brain mm. and you know I, I i i would use the term spiritual to to refer to what happens when i play music or write music but it's also i know that it's for me it's entirely inside my own mind mm. you know but mm. i still feel like that's the correct word for it yeah yeah i get that completely i do um all right maybe last question just mm -hmm. to the atheist point we've been circling around yeah, and i'm just sure, always curious sure. to, to hear yeah. for you like how'd you come to that i won't say conclusion because i'm sure you're open like if, if god appeared right now in this zoom call yeah. to prove it to yeah. us you'd be like oh look at that there is a god but what leads you to believe yeah the belief says yeah. They are now? yeah i think that's that's a good definition for me um if I met someone who was 100% certain that God did not exist, I would say that's not a very scientific minded approach to be even, even Richard Dawkins is not a hundred percent sure. Um, yeah. I, I need the evidence. I need the evidence to be, and I need it to be tangible, reproducible work for people. I mean, people say they have visions or something like that, but you can't reproduce that. You can't examine it. Um, I, I was pretty much sort of raised atheist or, uh, there's another word apatheist where it just didn't matter. My parents didn't take me to church. I went to a couple of Easter Christmas things with my grandparents and that was it, you know, and it was kind of, my parents were hippies and it was kind of like, yeah, whatever, 
you know, just be, just be kind to people. The rest of it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, later on, as I got older and kind of examined the world more, I saw um, a lot of what religion does to people on the bad side of things. And I've always made a pretty strong distinction between the idea or concept of God, which is essentially unprovable by definition. So to me, that's almost irrelevant. Yeah, throw it out. And the ideas of religion, which is a human created construct of mostly telling you who's part of your group and who's not. And when you start making the drawing those lines, um, I just think bad things happen. <laughs> Do you have a view at all about like what started the universe or, or why we're here? If not um, like a God? like <laughs> No, I mean, this is, yeah, scientifically, uh, the evidence for the Big Bang is compelling to me. Uh, people always want to ask, well, what was there before that? I say, I don't know. Right. And but I'm okay with that. There's a God, right? Yeah. 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 yeah I'm with you. Sure, man. I'm I'm so glad you reached out because um, firstly, I just love hearing people's stories and perspectives, but particularly somebody who's like so thoughtful, scientific, yet philosophical, yet artistic and open. <laughs> um, it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing. And and to have these types of conversations, I know it enriches me and it makes me better off for having it. I hope it's the same for our listeners. I hope you got enjoyment out of it too, but I thank you a ton for being on. Yeah, certainly. I, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome, man. I hope you have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. Hey, thanks a ton for listening to the episode. Um, I really do appreciate everybody that listens. And I think it's super cool that people want to hear conversations like this. They want to hear us talk about values and different perspectives and really just philosophical thinking. Um, I'm kind of on this mission or journey to bring philosophy back to the forefront, maybe even make philosophy cool again, because I just think there's so much value in thinking about our thinking, questioning and challenging ourselves more, pondering these big picture questions about life. Um, So in that spirit, I'm trying to expand that mission a little bit, and I created a Patreon account um, that would be awesome if you check out. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, It's pretty simple, though. It's patreon.com slash what's the value. And the idea is for people that maybe want to learn more about philosophy, their tone out a little bit, or maybe you already love it and just want to get more of it, um, check it out because there's kind of a tier for everybody, whether you just want to get like a quick philosophical video or a thought of the day, um, maybe you want to email or text me some questions and get some thoughtful philosophical responses, or if you want to have a live one-on-one chat over Zoom, um, we're even doing group discussions where we kind of do group philosophical debates and discussions and ponder some of those big questions. So check it out, see if it's something you might be interested in. Uh, As I said, I just love to bring more philosophy into our lives. And I thought this might be a cool way to do it. Um, Whether that's your thing or not, and you're into Patreon or not, I really do appreciate a ton that you listen and check out these episodes. So I appreciate it greatly. And I hope you have an awesome day.